This is the Gospel and Culture Podcast, providing gospel-centered resources to equip the church. Because when Jesus meets you where you are, and theology becomes practical, that is where the gospel and culture collide. We have a very special guest with us today. Uh, I can't believe the words that are actually going to come out of my mouth next. A, an actual presidential candidate for 2020 is joining us. Um, why he wanted to join us, I'm not really sure yet. <laughs> um, but I'm just uh, I'm thankful and, and glad that, that he uh, is, is with us. And um, we get to share uh, his story and, and uh, his platform with, with anybody listening. Um, and if you haven't voted yet, maybe you uh, could vote for him if if he if you decide to go that way. Um, but I want to I want to hear him out and you know give you a chance to to learn more about somebody. Um, and uh, so this is Brian Carroll of the American Solidarity Party, and uh, I'm I'm excited <laughs> for this. Yeah. Um, so Brian, if you could just you know introduce yourself and then uh, uh, jump kind of into your, your testimony. Okay, well, the first thing you need to know is that uh, presidential candidates don't belong up on any kind of a pedestal. Yeah, we're just people like anybody else. And as a third party candidate, I'm just a person with a little bit less of a PR team than some of the other parties have. But we're just people. And uh, my personal story, I uh, grew up in Los Angeles, a very large, uh, warm, extended family, especially on my mother's side. And we were all in, uh, in the Methodist church, uh, grew up on the social gospel. Um, lots of really wonderful people doing wonderful things, uh, wonderful music and wonderful potlucks, you know. <clears throat> and, uh, and so that's very much part of my early upbringing. In my teen years, and I, looking back on it, I'm not sure. I don't think I heard uh, much about a personal relationship with Christ growing up, whether that was because it wasn't being preached or I wasn't hearing it, or maybe because my parents were not at that point um, believers. I think my mother was when she was a small child. And both of my parents accepted Christ uh, just before they died. Um, but I didn't hear it as a child. And so as a result, I kind of got the feeling like the church was using scripture as a convenient mythology to hold the social club together. And that wasn't good enough for me. So I went off and I read the Quran, and that didn't do it for me. And I read some Buddhist things and some Hindu things. And... Um, of all the other religions that I read, uh, the Taoist scriptures appealed to me the most. But when I looked at them real close, I thought, you know what? To be a good Taoist, you have to be a, a hermit and go live in the woods. And uh, that wasn't me either. I needed people. Not a woodsy person. Yeah. And so uh, about that time, uh, some people were able to challenge me with the fact that uh, they believed scripture was more than a mythology and so i it didn't happen all at once i i spent several years kind of thinking it through and then um, after graduating from ucla with with a history degree i celebrated by 
going to Europe and just kind of hitchhiking around for a while. And because I was by myself for three months, I had a lot of time to, to pray and, and think. And uh, it finally got to me. I had been in Berlin, uh, divided Berlin in those days, went over into the east and saw what was very obviously uh, a really dismal situation. And it impressed me that it was dismal into the, in the degree that they were thumbing their nose at God. And then the next day back in West Germany, I had to face that in my own life. And I realized that I was at that point thumbing my nose at God. And so I said, no more. That's it. I, I am going to live the rest of my life in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and of course, that's always a wild ride. Um, came back and probably did not grow very much for about seven years. And, uh, and then got involved uh, in an evangelical free church that was just getting started and grew like crazy. And, uh, you know, you have to fix some things in your life, fix some things in our marriage. Uh, and, and then in 1984, we went uh, to South America with Wycliffe Bible Translators. My wife and I are both school teachers. And I we, have close family friends that are actually working with, with close with Wycliffe. What country? They're based in the U.S., um, but they work with their technology side. Um, okay. And, uh, and they, they do travel very frequently all, all over internationally. Well, we spent nine years in Colombia and uh, wonderful years. Uh, we, we finally left because there's a civil war going down there. And my wife and I were both teaching on the, on the center school, and the center had to be evacuated. And so we found ourselves back in the United States in uh, 1995 and uh, bounced around a little bit, uh, got back into uh, public school for the last uh, 11 years in the very, very same school, high school that I started in, in 77. So you're born uh, at this point. Pardon? So you're back in California at this point. Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, in 2016, uh, well, I had been a, a, a Republican for 35 years, but the last 10 of those years, I was less and less convinced. It just seemed to me like the, the Republican party, especially in Congress was more and more just say no and stinginess. And, and I was less and less convinced that they were as sincerely pro-life as they wanted us to believe. Okay. And so when I saw uh, Donald Trump coming, I said, no, that's, that's a bridge too far. I can't do that. And uh, when both conventions were over and I saw the choice you know, between Hillary and, and Donald Trump, I said, this election is a lost cause. It's start, time to start looking at the next one. And it took me about two weeks to find the American Solidarity Party. Uh, read through their platform once and said, yeah, this is it. Jumped in, never imagining that I would be the candidate. Um, but you know, God just kept 
opening Amen. doors. Amen. And every time he opened a door, I had to, you know, pray through a few fears. And uh, I kept getting a feeling like God said, yeah, go through the door. So I did. And here I am. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. That's, uh, that's crazy. <laughs> um, it, it also is very cool to me um, that you, uh, a lot of your, your beginning story and your testimony, uh, as far as when you started to have a real relationship with Jesus, uh, sounded like it was based a lot in whether or not this is true. In, in actual ultimate truth. Yes. Because um, that is something we're both very into um, is, is apologetics. Uh, so we're very into, you know, truth and worldviews and different religions and things like that. And, uh, and as it was just cool to, to hear you, you know, piece that together. Because um, a, a big part of my testimony, um, when I actually started getting serious uh, in my early 20s, I'm 29 now. Uh, in my early 20s was when I had a friend who got back from a uh, tour in Afghanistan with the Marines. Grew up with him my whole life. Grew up in church with him. And he came back. And I don't remember how, but we started talking about God. And he was like, I don't really consider myself a Christian anymore. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, when I was over there, there wasn't really anything to do. So... I started reading the Quran. I started reading the Bible. I started reading some Hindu stuff. I started reading Buddhist stuff. Same thing you said. And he said, I came to the conclusion that I don't think, I don't think that there is one view that has always been and will always be true for all people. And I said, wow, I've never heard any of this before. I grew up, you know, my church, my whole life and all that around Christian people my whole life. I said, I've never heard any of this before. And I have absolutely no answer for you um i said the only answer i do have is that i know that i know that the bible is true <laughs> and i know that it's right but i don't know why um and then from that point on is when pieces start to fall together where i started to learn more about truth and i started meeting new people that were very into apologetics and uh and now it just turned into a passion of mine um so it's cool how that works out. Yeah, and I think for me, it was, it was more of a, I came at it from more of a pastoral view yeah. um, in terms of like seeing so many young people, young adults, uh, after they left, their parents left home, uh, kind of struggle in that same dilemma. Um, just what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Is, is it actual truth or is it just something like a myth? And uh, I hated seeing that because I had experienced Christ and I, and I knew it was, was true. But to Aaron's point, at, at the time, as I was just starting to dabble, uh, why is it true? I don't know. And so I had to dig and search for myself. And as I did that, my faith became rooted. Um, you know, it wasn't getting tossed and turned by by every wind of doctrine. Yeah. Um, and it was it was that's kind of how we landed, you know, in, in uh, apologetics. So that's mm -hmm. that's really cool here. Uh, yeah. Now, and, and before we move on to, to politics, because I know people listening are probably like, well, get to the point. Anyway. I think it's so cool. This is just a side note to everything. I think it's so cool how we, I was actually born and raised in Maine. Marcus is from Jersey his whole life. Um, I moved in Jer to, to Jersey when I was nine. Um, you're from California. Went abroad for a while, came back to California. 
completely different coach, different, different experiences, different everything. But everything that has happened in the past couple minutes are because we're united as brothers in Christ. Amen. And I think that, and, and we, we're on the same wave, wavelength. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just think that's so cool. I'll go a step farther along that same theme because, you know, when I was in Columbia, uh, one of the things I like to do, we had a, a Sunday night evening service in English. And then afterwards, uh, a lot of the language helpers, the, the people from each of the different language groups that were helping us learn the languages and doing the translations, would get together for a Spanish language hymn sing or chorus sing. Uh, and we would have sometimes 10, 12 different languages represented in a, in a group of indigenous folks there. Uh, and Spanish was everybody's second language, uh, but it was the only common language we had. And we could worship together, all of us, each of us in a second language, a common second language. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these guys, families, were from little tiny jungle villages. Uh, you know, they they were having trouble as they were translating scripture. You know, how do you translate a, a passage like when Paul is let down over the wall of Damascus uh, to somebody who's never seen a wall? You know, they're, they're out in the in the a jungle community wow. where they don't even have a street. You know, it's there are so many concepts, and yet the the faith goes across that and i had an experience i was in i was in china i went there one summer to teach english uh, and uh, i was traveling in china afterwards with one of my students uh, a young chinese man uh, who had no spiritual interest at all no background at all but i told him i wanted to go visit a church and we were in uh, kunming on a Sunday morning, and we went to the, one of the three self-churches. Now, that's a government church. That's a church controlled by the communist government. Um, and there are certain things they are not allowed to teach on. For example, the second coming of Christ. But we arrived at a, a fairly large church. It was packed 10 minutes before it started. They found us a place to sit on a staircase going up uh, to the second floor. And I was surrounded by Chinese believers, and I could not understand the sermon, obviously, but I could see these guys were just incredibly intense following in their Bibles, and when one of them had a question, they would turn to the next one and ask a question, they would explain stuff. You know, I, I couldn't understand anything, but I could understand the fact that these were believers who were intense on wanting to know what the scriptures said. And it was really a thrilling experience. Uh, so you can go beyond the fact that, you know, we're on opposite coasts. Uh, there are believers all over the world right now that are, are worshiping and uh, we're, we're part of it. Wow, that's good. That's so incredible. Same Holy Spirit. That's right. Yeah. Um, all right, so... Uh... I'm ready to jump in if you want to jump in. Let's do it. I mean, you, you kind of spoke to one of my first questions uh, already, um, but if you could just put a bow on it, um, what really, what was it specifically that disillusioned you from the Republican Party? And, you know, on the flip side of that coin, uh, you know, why not 
than the Democratic Party? What, what was it that just turned you off and said, no, this, neither one of this is working? Well, well, my tie to the Republican Party was primarily uh, anti-abortion from the beginning, pro-life. And I became less and less convinced that the Wall Street uh, influences in the Republican Party were sincere uh, in you know, a little bit of temptation here and there to keep us going, throwing us a little bit. But I, I uh, when George W. Bush uh, was asked uh, if he thought we needed a personhood amendment. And he said, no, I don't think so. And I thought, well, wait a minute. That's why I've been voting Republican at that point for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I begin to think through if they actually passed a personhood amendment, then all of us pro-life people who were only, pro, only Republicans because we were pro-life, if we accomplished what we wanted, then we could go look on other kinds of, you know, some other social justice things and uh, economic things that would make more sense to us if we were free to go do it. And so I begin suspicious, begin to be suspicious of the of the uh, Republicans really sincerely supporting us in that. So that was kind of what broke it. And then uh, we had a we had a in California we had a a race where both the Democrat and the Republican uh, were pro-choice. And that gave me the freedom to go look at what the Democrats were saying. And there were a lot of areas where the Democrats uh, were closer to what I believed than the Republicans were. And so when I was free to do that, again, that kind of weakened the bond that I had to the Republican Party. But I could not be a Democrat. I, I can't be uh, pro-choice. I, I feel like the, the Democrats have been anti-religion going back into at least the uh, 1970s uh, and uh, you know I can't I can't go along with that okay that's good well I uh, I'll ask you this next question I mean as an african-american myself uh, I've seen you've seen a, and you just mentioned social justice uh, we've seen a lot of harmful policies um, you know go beyond what's on TV every day we see a lot of harmful policies that just have not uh, worked for African Americans, uh, Black Americans. Um, you know, and you could start with the '94 Crime Bill, which has been brought up a lot with Biden and Clinton, of course. Um, what do you think needs to happen uh, legislatively um, to kind of shift uh, that inequality uh, and, and bring equality? Well, I have uh, I've had a lot of hunches, but I'm also hesitant. As a white person, I'm hesitant to tell the black community uh, what we whites need to do for you. You know, I think we need to listen more than than talk. Uh, and you know, so there's a lot of things. Uh, redlining has destroyed uh, the African American community, and uh, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, last night, actually, for the first time. Uh, somebody sent me uh, a copy of, or a link to, um, the um, Ice Cube's uh, contract uh, with, was it contract with Black America? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I read through that, and boy, there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, 
it's kind of like drinking out of a fire hose. It's mm. just coming at you so fast. There's so much good stuff. And of course, some of it, uh, they're suggesting that it all be dealt with in the first hundred days. I don't think that's realistic. Right. You know, it's going to take a lot longer to work through. Some of it is not even federal level stuff. Some of it is state level stuff. And so, uh, but it needs to be sorted through. Um, I didn't see anything in there that was, uh, you know, a red flag. It all looked to me like stuff that is reasonable to discuss. And uh, it, it's not going to be something a president can impose. Uh, Congress will have to deal with it one issue at a time. Um, but definitely it needs to be a priority. Uh, we have gone, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in 1949. I can remember uh, the Birmingham bus strike. I can remember uh, the, the church bombing. I can remember, uh, well, you know, Martin Luther King during my high school years, uh, he was in the news every single day. So these are things that have been part of my thinking for an enormously long time. And when we were in high school, we kind of thought, well, yeah, we can solve this problem. You know, we'll, our generation will do it. And we haven't. Yeah. Which means, uh, you know, if, if our generation is going to be part of it, we've really got to, to, to hustle. And it should be something that, my generation can see accomplished before we leave the scene. And so I was very impre impressed with the, with the contract with Black America. I thought there's an enormous amount of good stuff in there. And uh, we just need to get to it. Cool. I still need to read that. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've watched some videos uh, of, of Ice Cube talking about it, but I haven't even dug into it yet. So I'll have to, I'll have to do that. You know, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's a long thing. It's, I went ahead and, and uh, printed off a copy for myself, uh, and it's like, I don't know, 18 pages or something. You know, it's, oh, it's okay. long, but there's an enormous amount of good stuff in there. Okay, great. That's cool. Um, yeah, the only thing I heard, I heard about it was, uh, was that he had done it and had connected with the Republicans, um, and, and they were, I guess, going back and forth talking about it, but that was really the, the last I heard about it. Right. Um, so, uh, a question about education. Um, we live near Philadelphia, the Philadelphia school system, education system, uh, is, in so many words, in, it's a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and, and, and again, you know, even in my local area, uh, public education, some of it is, is decent. Um, in some local towns, but again, some other local towns right around me are not good at all. Um, what, and I would venture to say that that would, that would probably be the experience of a lot of people across the country, um, as far as the public education system. Uh, what are maybe some things you would like to implement or ideas you would have uh, that you would try to put in place to, to basically help? Well, I... I've been a teacher for, I, I wasn't teaching every year during that time, but over a course of 44 years oh, wow. uh, that I was in and out of the classroom. And nine of those years were at the, at the school in Columbia on the mission center. Uh, another couple of years, uh, 
private Christian school here in California. And then I taught in uh, uh, four or five different situations in public schools. Um, mostly in rural uh, farmland, working with agricultural workers' families. Um, so that does not give me a lot of background to talk about Philadelphia. You know, I, uh, I, I can't speak to uh, even inner city Los Angeles, um, but I can kind of imagine some of the problems. One of the problems I think comes when we have a top-down system that imposes rules, but does not support them financially. You know, any school system is very dependent on the tax base of its immediate community. And I don't know the particular situation in Philadelphia, but if it's like a lot of cities, uh, at a certain point, you had white flight to suburban areas that formed their own school districts. And those school districts had pretty sufficient tax bases. And the inner city was left without much of a tax base. And so you have inferior schools for that reason. So one of the things that we need to do is even out the tax base uh, so that schools in one neighborhood uh, have the same chance at resources as the neighboring neighborhood. Um, but I don't want that to come with a lot of top-down instruction or, or forced curriculum. I don't support uh, the Common Core. Uh, too often, the Common Core and the tests that come with it uh, the results follow the, the size of the tax base more than the individual success of, of a school. Uh, because I was at a school that uh, dealt with you know, families from the farm workers and we did not have a tax base, uh, we struggled uh, to even you know, get up uh, in maybe 10% or 20% from the bottom. But we were up against some enormous problems. And we did have some federal programs that helped some. Uh, for several years, uh, my whole salary was from a federal program to reduce class size. And that was very helpful. Uh, but we need to give local school districts more control over curriculum. I don't favor. I don't favor a national test. Uh, you know the the inner city of uh, of Philadelphia should be able to decide what they want children in that district to know. Um, we don't need to have cookie cutter education. Part of the wealth of of our country is our diversity. Yeah. And if we get rid of that diversity with a common curriculum, we lose some of the richness of our country. Uh, I, I taught seventh grade history, world history, with uh, the other woman who was teaching with me. We were very different. 
She was a strong feminist and had been in Peace Corps in Africa, and she had that expertise. Uh, that was during the days when the when the uh, Equal Rights Amendment was up, and I was opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment because of abortion, and I did not want to see women in combat. And so we disagreed quite a bit. I mean, we were friendly. We carpooled every day, and we could have <laughs> conversations. Um, but but I felt like her students and my students were benefiting from the fact that they had two expert teachers who had strong opinions and we didn't grade kids down if they didn't agree with us, but we could present strong opinions. And if you forced us both to teach to the same test, each of us would have had to change our approach because we would have been teaching to a test that neither one of us really believed in. And that to me would have been a crime. Yeah, yeah, well, I want to I want to move on and ask you about, um, you know, you mentioned there's some things that um, maybe shouldn't be done by executive order by, by, by the president. Um, but we see that Congress just can't get along. Uh, you know, they basically are going to vote down party line uh, every single time. Um, what, what do we do about that? But then also, what do we do about um, reform uh, in, in the sense, you know, whether that's term limits um, about you know the ethics of how uh, congressmen and women are, are are working in D.C. Probably the most important thing that a president can do along those lines is his power to appoint people. Uh, I think the first thing I would do uh, upon being elected, before I ever got into office, uh, I would call a meeting with. Uh, two kinds of, well, in Congress, there is what's called a problem solvers caucus. It's equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats who are working across the aisle. You know, they take a problem at a time and they say, how can we solve this? And they try the best they can to set aside partisanship and come up with solutions. There's also a, um, a climate solutions uh, caucus, similar. Uh, they call it a, a Noah's Ark because they have to come in two by two, one Republican and one Democrat to get into the committee. And so I would start there. I would go to those congresspersons who have already demonstrated a willingness to, um, to work across the aisle. And I would say, hey guys, I want you to help me pick my cabinet. You know, I want you to help me, you know, direct me to the right people so that we, ha we can have a cabinet, uh, including maybe people from in that room who have demonstrated a willingness to work across the aisles. Mm -hmm. And then just put the word out to everybody else. Hey, guys, this is where the action's going to be. If you want to be highly partisan, we are going to ignore you. You know, you are not going to have a place at the table. We are going to be working with people who want to solve problems and we don't care, you know, which party, you know, take, take an issue like DACA. 80% of the American people want to see a merciful solution to DACA. And we, we can't get it because of partisanship. The, uh, the Republicans won't vote for it because it's perceived as a Democrat's issue. We don't want to give the Democrats a victory. 
And the Democrats won't vote for it because if they solve the problem, they don't have an issue anymore. And they use it for fundraising and things like that. So we have to take people with that mindset and just say, guys, you're no longer part of the conversation. We want people who want to solve problems. And, uh, you know, obviously a president can't do it by himself, but that would be the tone that I would set and hope that people start to fall in line. Right. Okay. Wow. I like that. I didn't know about any of any of those meetings that happened. I never heard. Well, of I mean, it sounds like the problem solving caucus should be what Congress should be anyway. Yeah. Like, that's the whole point. We shouldn't need a problem solving caucus. Unfortunately, that's what it's come to. Yeah. yeah. Wow. There, there are people in Congress, and I think there's similar things in the Senate. I'm not familiar with the Senate as much. Um, but there are people there who understand the problem, but they are not getting the kind of support, and and the White House could support that and encourage it. That's true. Good so. Um, so, as a third-party candidate, what... Basically, what is your path to the White House? How, how do you get elected? Well, Moses could part the Potomac. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, realistically, the only way I might get to the White House is to sign up for a White House tour. You know, <laughs> I hear you. I understand that. Yeah. Uh, and I, like I said, the, the doors opened one after another. I never imagined that I would get this far. It was not my ambition to be a candidate for president. Uh, I was quite happy. Uh, I was going to go ahead and teach junior high into my 70s. Hmm. And then the doors started to open. And I kind of one at a time, prayerfully went through them. And that's what got me this far. Uh, God certainly didn't come out of heaven and say, you are going to be president. Um, and But, you know, if you sign up to run, you have to face some of those issues. You have to ask yourself, you know, what would I do in this situation? And all through this year, this incredible, crazy year, uh, every time something new comes up, I have to stop and say, oh, okay, what would I do with that? And uh, so if... If God surprises me as much as he surprises the rest of the country and I wind up being president, uh, well, then I can answer your question. Until, until that happens, I can't really answer your question. I got you. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, uh, so I, I have a question here um, because we, you know, we have a lot of conversations to each other and, and with friends. Um, of all ages, uh, older and, and younger and all, Mo the, the majority opinion, at least in my experience and talking to people, the majority opinion is that why, why would I even waste my time to vote for a third party? Why would I waste my vote, throw it away, and, and vote for a third party that basically, like you just said, knows they're not going to be elected? Um, unless... Uh, you know, God parts the Red Sea. Um, <laughs> but so, so what are, explain that. Get somebody who's actually, actually in the trenches and going through it. Um, I, we've given explanations for it, uh, but 
give give your answer of why what you would tell somebody um, to answer that. It comes down to whether we want a short-term payoff or a long-term payoff. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're satisfied with a short-term payoff that isn't really what you want, then probably you're not going to be interested in third party. But anybody who is looking farther down the road and saying, you know, if we keep this up, uh, every time voting for the lesser of two evils, the the two parties are just going to become progressively more evil. Yeah. Yeah. So if our if our goal is long term, a little delayed gratification, then a third party makes a lot more sense. And the creativity in America happens in third parties. Uh, the the duopoly parties are already so entrenched and the the stakeholders are not going to budge and so as a result there's not a lot of creativity in those parties Um, in fact you see the creative wings of those parties are are frantic right now both parties Uh, but you know as a as a third party candidate I don't have to follow focus groups and and change my flavor of the day uh, based on on the latest polls. Uh, I can I'm free to do some creative thinking, and uh, actually that's where our party excels. Um, you know, in a couple of weeks I will probably be history, but the party platform is still going to be there, and we have the best platform in the United States, and so we're exposing people to that. You know, I spent a whole career, most of it teaching junior high, uh, a lot of history and government at the eighth grade level. Um, Obviously, I have a longer term view of things. Yeah. Now, when I teach an eighth grader about the Constitution, I'm looking 20, 30, 40 years down the line at the results. And so as a third party person, that's more my mindset. I'm trying to get people to do some deep thinking that will have a payoff further down the line. And you know, that's that's very interesting that you say that because I would initially feel like uh, somebody who's older uh, who may not see the fruits of their labor. Um, I see a lot of them saying, well, I'm definitely not voting third party. I'm not going to see the fruit of that, you know, building, you know, what I feel like is a decent, like you said, the best platform in America. Um, you know, and therefore there's voting, uh, for, again, the lesser of two evils. Um, but something that I've made the case for is that as believers, um, my vote is not just for myself either. Uh, I don't vote just for my own interest and just for my own agenda, what makes me feel safe and, and would help me and mine and my family. Um, but I vote for Aaron and I vote for you and I vote for the unborn child and I vote for my community and my neighbors, uh, those I don't know, immigrants that have not even migrated to this country yet. Um, and I think that changes everything when, you know, I think that's honestly why I started with the third party. When I changed my mindset to, I have to vote for not just myself, uh, but my neighbors. And that's another way that I love my neighbor. And I just find that, uh, fascinating that you, you saw, you know, your, your eighth grade student and you're like, I'm voting, you know, I'm doing this for him just as much, um, as you're doing it for yourself as well. So I just find that awesome. 
because I taught the same school district at the beginning of my career and the end of the career, I was fortunate to see um, generations pass through my classroom. I, at the end, I actually had grandkids from the first kids that I had in my class. And I had kids that would, well, I had parents dropping their kids off in the parking lot and they would see me and they'd say, Mr. Carroll, are you still here? And, and they would come out of their car and they'd come talk to me and say, you know, Mr. Carroll, when I was in the eighth grade, I, I had no idea what you were talking about. All this history stuff made no sense at all to me. And then I got into my 20s and it became my favorite subject. And that happened to me so often that it gave me a new way to look at my eighth graders. You know, these are kids who are really at this stage in life not ready to study history. And so you have to just kind of teach them some vocabulary and do some things like that and then figure that you know, later in life when they're ready for it, they will at least have some groundwork, some vocabulary to work with. And it did give me a, a, an ability to go in and face today's squirrely eighth graders and see what they're going to be like uh, in 20 or 30 years. And that, that definitely helped. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. The youth is where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've said for a while now, I sat in a, um, uh, a conference one time uh, and they, they, it was a bunch of youth pastors and they were kind of, uh, teaching youth pastors about this next generation, about the G Generation Z, essentially. Uh, and, and we've seen that they mobilize very quickly. If they have an agenda and they have something they need, they want to say, they want to see change, uh, they tend to mobilize pretty fast, and they actually do a really good job at it. Um, but from an uh, evangelical Christian perspective, I'd like to see them have the right agenda, mm -hmm. um, fighting for the right things, marching for the right things. Um, and I think that that's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm hoping for. Because I think I see a generation that's ready to change the world. Uh, but I think they just need Christ. And so um, hopefully we can do that evangelical work. Uh, I would agree. Amen. So we have some questions from uh, some others. Mm -hmm. Mainly our questions. But uh, so you have some questions from others, some family members, some friends. Uh, so Aaron, do you want to start that off? Yeah. So uh, one, one comes uh, from a friend of mine. Um, who actually ran as a Republican congressman in my district uh, twice, um, about 10 years ago. Um, he said, do you believe that life begins at conception? As, okay, there, there's a couple different controversies here. Are we talking conception as opposed to fertilization? Because there is, there is that issue that gets into, you know, what do we do with all of the uh, embryos that have been frozen as, as, uh, yeah. as part of in vitro fertilization process. Um, and on, on that particular controversy, uh, it, it, in my own life, you know, when we were newlyweds and, uh, our question was, do we use an IUD? And when we actually started looking at what the IUDs did, we said, oh, yeah, that's, that's just kind of like an abortion. And so we stopped doing it. Uh, and on a, on a societal level, uh, I'm not sure how we 
approach that problem. It's it has become so pervasive, so many out there that it's a it's an extremely difficult thing. But if we're talking about uh, from the time the embryo uh, implants, absolutely uh, any. Any interruption of the pregnancy, any artificial interruption, at, is an abortion, and I, I oppose it. Cool. That's a good answer, and a, in my opinion, a good answer, because I agree with it. Well, go ahead, Yeah, um, so I have a question from somebody who says, uh, 65 years old, um, they're about to retire, um, and about to receive Social Security. Uh, she says there seems to be a possibility that Social Security will be depleted within the next 10 years. Uh, what are your ideas on securing securing and funding the Social Security program beyond those 10 years? Well, I think the most obvious thing is you raise the cap. You know, right now, any incomes over, what was it, 140000 a year, I think is the cap. Um, anything above that is not taxed, and it ought to be. Uh, and so I think that's the really the most obvious solution. I, I haven't seen any other really good solutions. Okay. That's interesting. Um, all right, I have another question. Um, would you pull all the troops out from overseas? You can hurt innocent people by pulling troops out just as easily as you can by bombing them. You know, we saw that with the Kurds. Uh, when, you know, we had a, a delicate balance uh, between Turkey and, and the Kurds. Uh, and we had a small number of soldiers there who were maintaining that balance. And when President Trump pulled them out, they came in and massacred a lot of Kurds. Yeah. And so you have to be very, very careful how you pull troops out. You know, the goal is to get as many of our troops out of as many places as we can. Uh, but to just make a blanket statement that says, yeah, I'm going to pull them all out. First of all, you've given away all your bargaining power. You know, we, as we're pulling them out, we want to gain as many concessions as we can from the people who will still be there. And so to just make a blanket statement and say, yeah, I'm going to pull them out is not really responsible. Uh, we do want to get as many troops out as we reasonably can from as many places as we reasonably can. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some still very dangerous places in the world. And, and our troops are serving a peacekeeping effort there. Um, so I, I would be hesitant to make a blanket statement. Okay. That's good. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, so question I have, this is actually for my wife. <laughs> so we are crippled by student loan debt. Uh, we've seen how that has impacted our lives. The Lord has blessed us, and, and it hasn't been as crippling as I've seen it be for others. Uh, but it has, you know, it's, it's affected things like when we want to have kids. Uh, it's affected, you know, the our dream home as opposed to you know let's just go with the starter home um you know so what is there something we can do about that as a country 
Uh, I mean, we see it getting out of hand. It's it, it's affecting our economy. I mean, millennials just aren't spending money uh, in the way that we pop, we could be um, because of things like student loan debt. So, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it is a tragedy. Uh, I I uh, I think about 1988 or 89 was invited to address uh, high school graduation, give the uh, address to the to the to the graduates. And I said, the most important thing is don't get into debt. And so that, you know, that's been 32, 33 years ago. We could see the problem on the horizon. And the, the cost of college has mushroomed so much. And I don't know all the reasons for it, but it can't be so out of control that we can't rein it in somehow. And I, I'm certainly not an expert on college finances. I know that when I graduated from college, I had been able to you know, do part-time jobs. Uh, and, and again, minimum wage was better in those days compared to, certainly compared to a college. In those days, if you worked a summer job and you, uh, you, you know, worked weekends, uh, during school, you could pay for college. Uh, minimum wage was higher and college debts were lower. And so we've let that spin out of control. And partly that's uh, administration. You know, we've put so many rules on colleges that every rule needs an administrator to, to, to watch over it. And so you keep hiring more administrators to enforce more rules and the cost goes up. Uh, partly it's because uh, the student loans have been so available. You know, if you feed money into a system, it will find a way to spend it. And so just the fact that we made college loans available uh, has been part of the problem. We have to reverse it at every level. There's so many things that have caused it to, to spin out of control. We have to get it back into control. <laughs> Excuse me. And you're you're correct. It's families like yours that can't buy a house. You know, kids your age should be able uh, in their in their 20s or early 30s anyway uh, to buy their first home. Um, and if you're still trying to pay off college debt, that's not reasonable. Well, that cripples our whole society. Now, our whole society needs to have young families buying homes. And so it's not just a problem for the families that can't do it. It's a problem for the whole economy if we don't have young families who have the means to buy a house. Well, I'll tell you what, it's, it's good to hear somebody say that they're not an expert in something. Uh, I mean, it's just, you don't hear that in politics in our, in our current duopoly. Uh, they have an answer for everything, and you know you, you kind of get tired of people having an answer for everything. Uh, quite honestly, so I, I appreciate that as well. Uh, but that is that's good to hear uh, your answer on that. So yeah. So uh, I don't know if you haven't pulled up in front of you too, but we finished all the questions we had written down. Um, are you okay with with a couple kind of freestyle questions? Go for it. All right. <laughs> all right. So as a uh, fairly typical conservative 
myself um, and a lot of people that listen to this also are in that same boat. Um, I have to ask this question. <laughs> your, your thoughts on the Second Amendment. Um, do you like it? Would you, would you want to change it? How, would you, how do you approach guns and gun laws? Do we need more? Do we need less? You know, that type of thing. I, I think that, uh, well, first of all, I don't think it's an issue that can be dealt with by executive order. No, okay. it's, it's wrong for the president uh, to lead out and just order things. Yeah. Uh, I am uh, not a big gun enthusiast, uh, but I understand the Second Amendment and the reason for it. Uh, we, we definitely do need, uh, as part of our checks and balances in our country, uh, we know that governments can spin out of control and having the national guards, uh, having, you know, multiple different forces, armed forces, uh, helps us to, to maintain our freedoms. Uh, I do support things like red flag laws. You know, I think that uh, if a if a woman has a, a court order on uh, a ex husband or something that you know she feels threatened by him, she should be able to go to a court. Uh, he should have due process. You now he should be able to present his side. Uh, but I think if she feels uh, that she's not safe, she should be able to go to a court. He should have input. Uh, and a judge should be able to say, you know what, here's a fellow who, for at least a period of time, uh, should surrender his guns. That, I think, is reasonable. Uh, I think, a, uh, as a president, the most important thing I can do is to make sure that our current laws are funded. You know, so that when we have <clears throat> a gun dealer uh, call in on somebody and say, you know, is this person... Um, okay to get a gun. If there is something in the system, the system needs to be able to produce it. You know, the, the fellow who went into the church in Texas, uh, well, it's been, I don't know how many years ago it's been, you know, but he killed almost 30 people, I think. Uh, and if the gun laws on the books had been followed, uh, he would have been red flagged. He could not have bought one. Uh, but the system failed. Somehow the, the workings of the system failed to catch up with him and he got his guns. So I think the main thing that a president does is make sure that the current laws are enforced. Um, I, I am not in favor of any kind of gun buyback program or gun confiscation uh, or those kinds of things. Okay. Okay, cool. Did you have a question? Uh, I don't know. All right. I have a couple more. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, healthcare. Um, there, it seems to be a mess right now. Um, do you have a, uh, an extensive plan, um, that, that you would want to see implemented? Would you, uh, adjust what's there? Do you like what's there? Do you, you know, how do you approach that? Well, you'd have to be pretty blind to like what's there now. 
<laughs> uh, you know, we, we spend twice the GNP, percent of GNP, as the other industrialized countries of the world, and we have less efficiency. Um, there are lots of really good conservative arguments for a single-payer health insurance. Uh, we spend, uh, last figure I saw, and that's been two or three years ago, the figure was $360 billion a year on useless paperwork in our healthcare system. Uh, when you have, and, and I saw this in my own family, my wife and I were both school teachers, same school district, same insurance, same company. And we were getting, you know, multiple letters a week. You know, you went to the doctor. Uh, does it, is it your insurance that pays for this or is it your wife's insurance pays for this? Well, that was the same insurance company. They should have been able to figure that out. They were covering us. And, uh, and yet we spent, admittedly, it was my wife that spent most of the time. But it seemed like every month she was having to call the insurance company to, to figure out some little thing like that. You know, who, who pays this $10? Right. A single payer insurance would eliminate that. Uh, I have uh, a son who lives in England and uh, they've had three babies over there. And not only was everything taken care of with a minimum amount of paperwork, uh, but they, they, it was all paid for uh, through the tax programs. And my daughter-in-law got six months of paid maternity leave. You know, that, why can't we do that? If they can do that, we can do that. Right. Um, we also, under our system, uh, most doctors spend more minutes filling out insurance paperwork than they do meeting with patients. Well, we have a doctor shortage. We could double our doctors if we could just free them from that kind of paperwork. Uh, we have, um, in the last, uh, I don't know, four or five years, we have lost over 600 rural hospitals. They just can't make it under our, our current system. Uh, so we, we need to find ways to revitalize uh, rural hospitals. Uh, we have a disproportionate, uh, well, uh, a, a black woman going into labor has four times the chance of dying as a white woman. Right? Our system is failing. We need to fix that. And so... Uh, a single-payer system would control costs. It would take it out of the uh, employment. You know, right now, you can't take your insurance from one place to the other, and it's hard to get a job because a lot of employers will only give you 28 hours because they don't want to pay your health insurance. Mm, yeah. And if we separate insurance from occupation, then people are free to go find a better job. Uh, employers are free to go find the people they want and give them the hours they want. Uh, if we are paying it from a central payer, uh, you know, the mechanic who
who's got to hire a secretary uh, so many hours a week to, to fill out all the health insurance stuff for the other employees can can let that secretary go. Uh, and, you know, yeah, he's going to pay more taxes, but he doesn't have to worry about all of the, the paperwork that he's had to worry about now uh, in the office. And we can, you know, no other country has done what we've done by, by tying health insurance to employment. Nobody's done that. We're the only ones. Mm-hmm. Well, um, if you could speak on, uh, I, I know that uh, we did so, kind of talk about earlier um, abortion, um, but I, I don't think we did. We didn't talk about whole life, right? No, we didn't. No. no. I, I would like you to, because uh, I know that I, I know whole life is a big thing for you and it's big on your platform. Um, explain what that is and, and, and why that's so important to you. Well, when we talk about whole life or consistent life, there's, there's a couple other terms that find nuances and differences. Uh, we're talking about the fact that every human life is sacred. And that's both in the womb, but we're also opposed to assisted suicide. We're opposed to capital punishment. And we are in favor of the things that help to uh, produce healthy communities. Uh, you know, we, we want to see uh, the healthcare care uh, right now when a woman finds herself in a problem pregnancy, the number one reason to go for an abortion is fear. And healthcare costs are one of those fears. And uh, the cost of uh, raising a child age 21 without health insurance is pretty, pretty scary. And so one area we want to do is reduce the fears. We want to do everything we can to give a woman confidence. Not only can she give birth to that child, but she can either successfully raise the child or she can hand it off to a, to a family to adopt. And so a, a whole life view of things says we don't want to just get the baby born. We want to give that baby a good chance at a good life. And that means all the other areas of our platform. You know, that means social justice. That means uh, we fight climate change. You know, if we get to our, get a point where, where we have, you know, the, the plankton in the ocean that recycles a lot of our uh, carbon dioxide into oxygen. The, the window of tolerance for healthy plankton is only three or four degrees. You know, if the oceans rise beyond that window, suddenly we're all going to be short of oxygen. And if you don't take care of, of uh, sea level rise, we're going to have massive migrations of people who live at low levels go into higher ground and you're going to have warfare all over the place. Well, war is not healthy to human life. 
So we need to do the kinds of things that are conducive uh, to a healthy planet, a peaceful planet. I, I, I know that until Jesus comes back, we'll never have perfect peace here. Uh, there will always be, you know, you can outlaw abortion, but we've already outlawed murder and we still have murders, you know, so we're not going to ever reach perfection. But by the grace of God, we need to pursue improving things everywhere we can. And all of it folds into really a, a whole life, consistent life ethic. Hmm. You have, I was going to ask him this last question here. Uh, what's the last question? Right after. Oh, I thought we kind of answered that. Oh, uh, well, um, let me ask him uh, directly. Go ahead. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, miracle happens, you end up in the White House. <laughs> what is what is the first thing that you prioritize? Uh, maybe you said it earlier. Uh, can you just put a bow on that? Tell us tell us what that first thing is uh, that you're you're doing. Well, obviously, the, the first thing you have to do is appoint a lot of people. So that's the, that's the major task, is filling a lot of jobs with the best people you can get. Uh, the first thing that I would actually propose uh, is putting together a commission to rewrite the 14th Amendment. Uh, the Reconstruction Amendments, you know, 13 supposedly freed the slaves, although we know that even there uh, it was not totally successful. And, and then the South said, all right, well, the slaves are free, but they're not citizens. And so they immediately, about a year later, uh, wrote the 14th Amendment. And the whole purpose of the 14th Amendment was to make citizens of the former slaves. And it also included uh, Native Americans and some other things in there. But it got twisted right away. Uh, legal language recognizes natural persons and artificial persons, you know, like corporations. And the amendment should have said all natural persons. Uh, born or naturalized in the United States. And by leaving that out, it suddenly became a tool for the corporations. Wow. In the first 60 years, the Supreme Court dealt with 300 cases of corporations wanting the rights of personhood, you know, lower taxes and those kinds of things. And only 30 dealing with uh, what we would think of as civil rights. And, and they got those wrong. You know, Plessy Ferguson said uh, it was okay to have separate but equal. Right. Um, and so uh, we need to reverse the situation. Today, corporations have the rights of personhood. And children, unborn children, do not have those rights of personhood. And we need to fix that. Uh, so that would be the, the very first thing I would do. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of things to get done. Uh, the, the contract with Black America, uh, like I said, was a fire hose. And there's no way to get all of that done in 100 days. Uh, but you'd get started on it. 
yeah, that's where I'd start. All right, perfect. Well, thank you. All right, so the way I like to usually end interviews, um, first, I'll give you some rapid-fire questions. So these are just uh, – I, like I like to see what you've been kind of ingesting and, and diving into um, so that maybe anybody listening might, might enjoy those things. Uh, so right now, what are some – it could be podcasts or books or uh, media that, that you've been really into, like your, your top two or three that you, you really like, or authors. Uh, the last book I read, uh, the, the um, forget the name of the author. Um, yeah, forget the title. It's, it's about the, the, last hundred years of the um, the kind of the contest between those who wanted to break up the monopolies and those that wanted to establish monopolies uh, and uh, it's fascinating I need to go back and read it again and then I just the one I just got onto my uh, player to listen to uh, and again I forget the title but it's looking at the new threats coming out of China, uh, how China is is uh, spreading their influence uh, kind of secretly in some ways. They're under the under the cover. Uh, they're not confronting us directly. They would like to defeat us, but they want to do it on the cheap, and so they're finding all kinds of little devious ways to do it. So that's the next one I'm going to read. Uh, as far as things I listen to, uh, I try and start my morning every day with Al Mohler. Uh, I listen to um, uh, the um, the Briscoes, Stuart, Jill, and uh, I'm doing a hell, horrible job on on uh, names right now. Um, I can't remember the son's name, um, but I enjoy listening to them. Uh, I listen to, I try and listen to those every day, those three, uh, don't always get to them. Uh, I am, I use the, uh, uh, the daily Bible and I have to admit I'm about 50 days behind for this year, but I'm trying to catch up. Uh, I don't watch any TV at all. Uh, I listen to uh, an eclectic group of uh, musicians. I like uh, a lot of uh, the old hymns. I like uh, uh, the flute and uh, harp music from the Andes. Uh, I like um, Cajun music. Uh, you know, I listen to all kinds of fun stuff music wise. Um, but I would say that's the media that I listen to. Wow, that's cool. That's that was a lot better of an answer than I. I you know, you, it was a lot different because you know, but it made sense because uh, you know, you, like you just said, the music you've been into because you've traveled the world, so you've you've seen and heard a lot of different cultures and, and listened to a lot of different music. So I, you know, it yeah, makes Goliath is the name of the book I couldn't remember, and there's a longer title, but Goliath. Okay, got it. Um, all right. So 
last thing, last thing before I have you plug all of, all of you know how people can find out you know uh, find out about you. It can be anything. It can be personal. It can be as as a presidential candidate. Anything that you want. What would be the one last short message that you would want the people to hear? Uh, don't lose faith in America. You know we're at a point where uh, both sides are saying that if the other side wins, you know the country is all over. You know we've lost everything. There's nothing nothing left for four years from now, and that's wrong. You know we have a much stronger country than that, and we cannot let ourselves be overcome by those kinds of fears. We have to pull back toward the center. We have to uh, respect people who disagree with us. We have to listen to them. We have to look for ways to compromise and work together. But it all starts with believing that it's possible. You know, if we give up hope, uh, then, then, then there is no hope. That's great. And personally, I needed to hear that. Yeah, 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 seriously. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, so go ahead and plug uh, your, your websites, your social media, any way that people can find out um, and follow you and, and all that and support. Uh, yeah, I do have uh, the, the campaign website. It's just briancarroll.life. Uh, and I have to admit that when I'm working on stuff, that's kind of the last thing I get to. The first thing I get to uh, every day and throughout the day uh, is uh, Facebook, and so I have a, a Facebook page, uh, Brian Carroll, I'm an ASP uh, for President 2020, and that's the first thing that I deal with every day and the thing that is most current. And uh, there's also a, a, a Twitter page, and there's an Instagram page, and there's you know, those other things like that as well. Uh, but uh, the most current uh, of whatever I'm thinking is is on that Facebook page. Awesome. Okay, can I ask you one last question? Okay. You can ask Ken. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about your vice president, uh, presidential candidate. Oh yeah, uh, Amar Patel. He's also a, a high school teacher, uh, math and statistics, um, and uh, he was at the time that I was um, looking for a vice president. He was the chairman, national chairman of the party. So I was working closely with him. And we went through all kinds of names and nothing seemed to click. And But he and I were clicking real well. <laughs> and so I finally said, hey, you know, Amar, why don't you just come be my vice president? And uh, I'm very pleased with that. Uh, he has done an excellent job. And uh, we've become real good friends. And so he he's much younger than I am. Uh, I suspect that at some point he could be the presidential candidate for us. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, his family uh, comes from India. He was born in the United States of very recent immigrants. Uh, and he has recently begun to appreciate how valuable it was to have that close family. Uh, they were. They were, you know, immigrants, a bunch of them living in, together in, in one apartment. Uh, and he's, he's come to appreciate how valuable that was. And so he's, that's one of his common themes, uh, one of his frequent themes. Uh, yeah, really nice guy, a great leader. Uh, he's no longer the chairman of the party. He turned that over to somebody else. Uh, 
uh, and he's uh, got lots of great ideas that he's working on. But he would be a if if we are elected, he will be a great vice president. Cool. Huh? Awesome. That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, and this is very important. Um, how can people vote for you? If you are in Colorado, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, Illinois, Wisconsin, Rhode Island, or Vermont, we are on the ballot. Awesome. Uh, in some states, uh, we will, if, if people write us in, we'll never know because some states don't bother to count them, like South Carolina. Uh, we, have, we actually have a very strong committee there, and I anticipate that we will get a few votes there, but we'll never find out how many. Mm. Uh, in many of the states, uh, at the bottom of your list of candidates is a space for write-in. And uh, so you simply write in uh, Brian Carroll. Uh, if there's room to get Amar Patel in there, fine, but even just putting my name is probably enough. You don't have to write the party. You don't have to write anything like that. Um, most of the states that take write-ins have said that it they will judge on intent. So try and spell it right, C-A-R-R-O-L-L. But if you miss an L or you miss an R, most states have said they will count it. And so, you know, the bigger states, California, Texas, Florida, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, all of those states will count our write-in votes. Great. Cool. Well, uh, Brian, I just want to thank you again uh, for doing this, but also for being bold enough to, to obey the Lord uh, and running. Um, if at the very least uh, you've inspired me to stay engaged, uh, not settle for the, the two parties we currently have uh, and believe that we can make a difference. So uh, I, I just want to thank you for that. Thank you, Marcus. Yeah. Thank you. Right now, I heard the last from this guy. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, thank you very much for, for doing this. This, this was an honor. Um, and, uh, and I really hope that, in, I, I personally would hope that in God's plan, it would be that you get a lot more attention, um, than you may be expecting. Uh, but time will tell and, and, uh, it's all in the Lord's hands. Um, but yeah, we, we thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. And, uh, I know, I know you're in a hectic season, but make sure you get enough rest so that you can keep up with the hecticness. So, uh, we're on different time zones, but I'm going to go to sleep soon. And um, make sure you get rest, and uh, I'm going to pray for you. So I would appreciate that. Yeah, and I appreciate all that you're doing. Um, so, uh, I think we're good. I think we're good. Cool. Thank well, you, sir. Both. I've enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you, sir. It was a great conversation. God bless.